and take it away. Bingo. You're on. Oh, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, I'm good. Uh, good evening. Were. Good yeah. evening. Good evening to all you pastors and welcome to our fourth year season or whatever way you want to describe it of money talks bullshit walks the history of philadelphia from 1980 to present from green to kenny uh our podcast the is is a podcast that people have listened to and shake their heads at but what i'd like to tell everybody is that we are not historians we're not journalists we do not claim to be journalists or historians, although we've had journalists and historians join us. We are here to talk to David Kopich, uh, and we'll get to David in a moment. But uh, I also would like to say that uh, we follow the creed of the land of the giants, which is Philadelphia. And just look at us as some people talking around and about things that make the city of Philadelphia tick like a bomb. So with that, Joe, you don't like that, huh? Uh, I have to edit that one out. With that, David Kopich, uh, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Um, tell us um, who you are and what you've been doing. Sure thing. So thank you, Joe and Peter, for having me. I really appreciate this. It's a honor to join this conversation. And I hope that, uh, you know, my story adds to, to uh, the conversation you've been having for four years. It's a it's exciting project. Um, well, where do I start? I came to Philadelphia in 1992. So mm -hmm. it's been 31 years. I'm originally a North New Jerseyan. I'm a family came into New York from, you know, from Ireland and Germany, et cetera, in the late 1800s and settled up there. And I made my way down to Philadelphia in 1992 to go to Temple University. Mm -hmm for grad school in social work. And uh, I have stayed ever since. And here, you know, this is home and I'm raising my kids here and, and we are, we are consider ourselves Philadelphians. Um, I, it's an interesting story about Temple. I remember uh, arriving at Temple. I did not know much about Philadelphia. This is 1992, Mayor Rendell, I believe, just came into office, or maybe that was the election year, but it was right around that time, yeah, he, right? So he came we were... in and uh, he was, the, the election was 91, so he was sworn. Okay, so you remember what Philadelphia was like at that time, right? And I remember going to Temple University and going to the fifth floor of Ritter Annex, which is where the social work school was, and you could see a panorama of North Philadelphia mm -hmm. uh, at that time, right? And uh, it's changed a lot, as we all know, uh, but the sort of sea of, you know, deindustrialization, right? And, and, the, and the, just the, 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 the havoc of deindustrialization and depopulation uh, and segregation of North Philadelphia that you could see for miles from the fifth floor of Ritter Annex where the social work school was. And I just remember sort of saying to, to colleagues and teachers and, uh, you know, co uh, students like, like, what are we doing if we're not dealing with what I, what I see out the window here kind of thing, right? And I grew up, you know, fairly sheltered. I grew up in the suburbs. Uh, you know, we were very, we were comfortable folks. And, and, and uh, you know, I had experienced, but not really 
um, not really experienced, I should say, this kind of, uh, you know, sort of abject poverty that Temple was in the middle of, right? So I feel like that scene from the fifth floor of Ritter Annex on Temple campus was sort of the beginning of my relationship with Philadelphia and my relationship with what I felt like I wanted to do in Philadelphia and to sort of be a part of any change in Philadelphia. Um, went to grad school there, um, uh, finished up in 94, uh, did some work for a department of the social work school that did kind of community work and tried to tie the university's resources with kind of community organizations, which was a good learning experience, also fraught with kind of, you know, institutional self-interest and community self-interest. And I remember actually semi-organizing, although that wasn't really my job, some neighbors around Temple. And I was hearing some stories of people saying they were worried of uh, a new arena coming into town, to the neighborhood that was going to displace a few blocks and you know dozens and dozens of families and they were nervous that people were talking about it and the more i found out about it well this was the leocora center sure. uh which well, is now great. you know uh which we probably have all you know enjoyed some basketball games in that arena over the years and this was one of my first uh introductions to i think sort of hardball and institutional politics in philadelphia because i remember the president of temple at the time and this is a long introduction but i'm getting I think, to right. some, of the, right. some of the some we'll, of the some we'll of the stories jump off here. Into it. okay i remember the president of the time whose name was leah chorus right president leah of chorus. temple comes to our department which was like again this sort of community outreach arm of the social work school and he came to us and he said look i've heard a lot of good things about what you all are doing in the community can you write me a report of all the you know neighborhood connections and all the resources you're giving the neighborhood and, and helping community groups and and i was assigned as a you know a grad student to kind of write this report and i was all excited and proud of all the work you know that i was involved in, in the neighborhood well about a month or two later i learned that that president leo chorus is using <laughs> is using the report that i basically wrote to go to council and at the time was President John Street Council and Councilman of the Fifth District, right? Exactly. In whose district Temple and this future Leacora Center sat, he was basically using our and other, you know, departments' reports to say, "Look at all the wonderful things that Temple University has done in the neighborhood. Therefore, you should grant us eminent domain and other powers to build our." What What was Street's Leacorce. reaction to that? Well. The cent the, it got built, right? So we know the end results. Right. Um, my understanding, and I was pretty naive still at the time in terms of how things worked in hardball city politics, but um, some deal, right, obviously was reached between uh, city council president John Street and Temple University. Some, some deal. I mean, he was a fighter, if nothing else, right? John well, Street yeah, was a I fighter mean, for that neighborhood. If, and, if, you know, if you go back. And, yeah. and look at John Street, um, and we've talked about it a number of times, but he was a community organizer. Absolutely. And yeah. he, he rose to prominence by getting into a fist fight on the floor of city council. <laughs> with, um, with Franny Rafferty. <laughs> exactly. And Franny was right. not a small guy. No. Um, and and right. uh, 
but it's interesting that now you're in the midst of preparing a report to yeah. uh, to get to the uh, to get to the president of city council, who ultimately becomes the mayor, about right. the the surrounding neighborhood of North Philadelphia, who he had been fighting to right. to do good. Let's just say right. that for right. now. Right. Right. Um, right. And now it's sort of the power has sort of he's got the power, not fighting it, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I you know, I, I don't, I'm, I don't want to malign uh, him, but I, no, I obviously, obviously some, some deal was made, right? That's Temple yeah. got, stadium got built and what community benefits ended up uh, getting uh, in exchange for agreement from city council to build that. I, I am, I don't, I don't know the specifics, but it was a lesson for me as a still young, still pretty idealistic kid right 23 or whatever wanting to work in neighborhoods wanting to work you know with communities etc like oh this is how power works okay I'm, I'm starting to see something here so and there were limitations given where we were situated in the social work school and situated at temple and it was a you know those people some of them are still there love those people they help shape and inform me but I kind of realized, you know what, I think I need to be in a different kind of venue if I want to do the kind of work because the limitations of working for a large institution and trying to do sort of community change, it's just the, the contradictions were, were too much for me at the time. So what was so, community organizing like in 1992? Yeah, well, um, there were two. And I ended up working for one, and Joe's familiar with both of them, I'm sure, there, and you maybe too, Peter. There were two sort of faith-based community organizing networks in the city at that time, right? There was PIA, Philadelphia Interfaith Action, and then there was EPOP, Eastern Philadelphia Organizing Project that emerged in the 90s. And these were, you know, congregation-based out of that kind of, of what a originally came out of the Alinsky model, but then it morphed into a sort of a congregation-based approach to organizing. Um, you know, they were, they were two big voices on the scene, I think in the mid nineties there. Um, I connected to, uh, which was, you know, Joe, you mentioned this, uh, I sort of fell into um, a, a project that emerged through the settlement house coalition of Philadelphia. So it was called at the time, the Greater Philadelphia Federation of Settlement Houses, right? Mm -hmm. Settlement houses, right? Roots in the late 1800s, early 1900s, right? These were, yeah, these were bought by and large, you know, places created by uh, uh, generally sort of middle-class white reformer types, right? Uh, kind of progressive mm -hmm. era. And these were, era, these were, you know, um, centers located in immigrant neighborhoods that were to help kind of integrate and help support and help kind of, you know, give uh, some, some social connections to, to immigrant communities. And Philadelphia had a whole bunch of them. And over the, over the years, like formed this federation and, um, I think what was happening, and Joe, you 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 could, I'm sure you know that you probably know this better because I kind of came in late. But what my understanding was is that the those those um, settlement houses, places like Lutheran Settlement House in in Fishtown, there, you know, been around for 125 years, 
places like used to be called the Houston Center, United Communities of Southeast Philadelphia. I think that right. place has been there since the 1880s or something like right. that. That I think that at these these places over time, particularly in the after the 60s and 70s and 80s, that they had sort of, you know, these neighborhoods had changed. These places had lost some of their whatever their original purpose and mission was. And many of them became sort of contract-based social service agencies, essentially, right? And not, not kind of organic neighborhood centers. And my understanding of what happened in the, in the first real organizing project I got involved in is that there was some conversation about, well, how do we maybe recapture some of that connection to our communities? Or how do we kind of recapture some of that original um, mission of settlements being, you know, like a, a, a place for change and a place for marginalized folks to, to actually have a voice and not just be clients or recipients of charity, et cetera, et cetera. So there was some effort. I know that the, the, one of the founders and, and a longtime organizer that, that unfortunately has, has passed away that, that Joe and I have worked with, Steve Honeyman was involved in, in sort of helping this effort kind of conceptualize like, okay, how can we begin to do some community organizing in the 1990s out of some of these settlement houses that were, some of them were formed in the 1890s and, and the world has changed and what, does, what can we, you know, can these places be centers for community organizing? So they raised some money. I think it was actually the William Penn Foundation that funded that originally, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, they were looking for some organizers. I had a friend whose partner was Kim Tynan, oh, who Kim. was hired by the settlement houses to be the lead organizer of this thing. Um, I remember she sat down, she said, can I meet you for a beer at Dirty Frank's bar at 13th and Pine? <laughs> and I, I lived around the corner at the time. I was like, of course, 50 feet from my house. I can, I can, I can stumble home. What, what's going on? What do you have to do? Take yeah, what's going on? And she, uh, she, I, I, I was, I was on the receiving end of a, of a, of an organizing one-on-one, -on -one, which I had never sort of knew right. that that concept right well she basically probed you know like who is this dave Coppish? i hear about him he's doing some stuff he wants to do more organizing like what's his real self-interest blah, blah 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 but before i know i basically was offered you know do you want to come and work for this this new organizing effort right. and i was like i don't understand it but yeah let's that sounds fun let's go let's do it so, Let's do it. <laughs> so what was once once you got uh, enough beers in you at Dirty Franks and agreed to do this, mm -hmm. and we're sitting in the early '90s. What is the first project that mm -hmm. you think is going to fly, and in mm -hmm. what neighborhood? Right, that was that's a really good question. So I was primarily kind uh, of placed in a place called the North Lake Community Center. I know where is, that is, right which now? is in which is in Maniunk, and I'm I know Joe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Joe has a has a very strong connection there. Uh, to that institution, and I was I was sort of placed there. And the original idea, as I understood it, was you know this is the early mid not mid nineties late nineties right. Maniunk had already been experiencing you know some gentrification and some you know those those mills that were still employing yeah. folks into the 80s 90s right the Connolly and those places were, yeah. were some of them were beginning to close down and move out and you know you were beginning to see a demographic demographic shift right you were starting yeah. to see 
younger urban professionals, quote unquote, people moving into to, you know, pretty, pretty reasonable houses, older families, maybe the younger generation had been there, you know, three, four generations, maybe they didn't want to stay in grandma's row home and starting to move out and maybe they had other opportunities and, you know, the pressures on real estate, the pressures on, on the economics of that neighborhood, and then all the things that go with it in terms of like, culture clashes between young new folks coming in and the older generation and yeah so, so you know, that, that kind of it, stuff so that became well, but, the original conversation but, yeah. but but that's almost it, it in in i guess back in the times of the settlements that were started in chicago that was sort of the original aim that these groups of people the poorer people from the neighborhoods would coalesce and and join mm. in with I'll just say middle class, lower doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it gets perverted by gentrification and and even goes into warp speed when abatement comes. Mm, um, and that's a good point. All those things that are uh, idealized, I, I guess, um, get turned on their head um, and people don't necessarily want to live in that neighborhood. They like the idea of buying a cheap house, right, uh, right. which is sturdy and fixing it up and then not having to pay taxes. And then the developers say, hmm, this really works. Um, yeah. But then you lose the flavor of the neighborhood. Yeah. And there's supposed to be a happy mix going back to the 1890s. And you see conflict now. Yeah, a lot of conflict. Um, yeah, David, how did that play out in Maniunk? Um, you'll have to remind me of that stuff. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. So, you know, I was still a a a, a sort of new new you know young organizer, right? I was still sort of learning a particular model and sort of learning. Okay, how do we build something here that's going to last? That's actually going to involve lots of people. That's not just going to be sort of a short-term activist kind of, you know, respond, um, reacting to things which the existing groups, as you, I'm sure, you know, maybe it's still happening, but a lot of the existing sort of civic organizations had become sort of very reactive, like mm -hmm. just trying to fight this zoning battle one at a time kind of thing, or this particular house, you know, one at a time. And it was just sort of, these forces were way too big, I think, for that that sort of approach. And so the idea was, well, could you build something that was a little bit more broad-based? And at the time, because we were sort of influenced, and particularly with you know Steve Honeyman's experience by a kind of a kind of a congregation-based model, could you bring together a large a larger body of people, maybe a cross section of people? Maybe it is sort of a mix of the old timers and then some of the newcomers, et cetera. Um, but build something that could be a little bit more hefty when trying to deal with these larger forces of you know, zone, you know, a, a, an abatement law passed at city council or, you know, sort of larger, larger, larger forces. So we, we, we did build a structure. I mean, we, we, we did have a good 15, 17 congregations that were pretty active for a good several years who really felt like, yeah, we do, this neighborhood is changing. We're not going to stop everything, but we do need a stronger voice to sort of not just, you know, sort of be passive observers to change, but really be a voice in that. We started very small with issues like, you know, that's a that's a kind of a model of organizing, right? Start with small stuff, small winnable stuff, right? So we we began to take on 
which seemed very small at the time. I mean, literally like stop sign issues, right? right. So I remember a stop sign that was, uh, there was an issue around uh, Green Lane going up that hill, right? And there was St. Lucy's Church, which I believe is right. now closed. And yeah, there was this thing with kids crossing the street during recess and the trucks and the cars. And of course it was all worse because of all the gentrification and stuff. And right. we said, well, you know what? That's what people care about. Let's start with a stop sign, you know? So I do remember as a young, you know, again, kind of idealized, like a stop sign, my God, like, you know, Rome is burning and we're gonna, we're gonna go for it. We're gonna try to get a stop sign, you know? But, you know, it was along this model of, you know, start with where people are at, right? Like if that's what's in front of them, that's what they care about. Let's go there. Let's see if we can build on that and that kind of thing. And we, you know, we got people involved who not, we're not normally the kind of people who were like involved in neighborhood activism. So we said, okay, this is, this could work, you know, dealt with the streets department, the whole, you know, trying to deal with the administration around, around those kinds of things, eventually got it, you know, people felt pretty good about that. Um, and then from there we said, okay, well, what are some other things that we could start to, that a little bit higher order kinds of things. And so one issue that people really kind of, glommed onto was this issue of, and you've just referenced it, Peter, people buying homes for the sole purpose of renting them out, right? To, you know, three, four, five, six people. Generally, these are like, you know, St. Joe's students or, you know, right. well, you know, grad students from, I don't know, PCOM or whatever, whatever it is, right? But there was money to be made, right? Because again, like I think the younger generation from what I was understanding of kind of many young folks, maybe they were like, you know what? I, I don't think I can stay in this neighborhood anymore and I'm gonna put up for sale. People saw that, investors saw that, people were gobbling them up, renting them out. And, you know, it was, it was, it was adding to this dynamic of congestion and loss of sense of community, right? And these folks, don't know the rules of the neighborhood, you know, right. in terms of like parking and loud parties and trash day, you know, all those things, right? And and, that, and that's exploded since the nineties. Oh, Manny I'm sure. Oak may have been, Manny Oak may have been the first neighborhood, maybe yeah. not the first. If you go all the way back, you can go to Society Hill in Center City, but that's another right. wall. Yeah. But so you now know, it's we, Fishtown. Let's just, I mean, it's well, it's a similar, right? Yeah, similar dense, you know row home neighborhood kind of thing. So I remember we dealt with, so the, the issue was, okay, how, so there is something on the books around, you know, uh, more than three unrelated people in a, in a, uh, a home uh, uh, zone, single family, you know, it's a, it's an illegal use of the house. You've got to get a certain rental license. There were some technicalities around what was happening. That was what they were violations of. So we began to do a lot of research. We tried to, we figured out like, okay, who owns all these houses? And there were certainly investors who owned like 20 row homes here, 15 over there, 12 over there. And there were clearly pockets of, you know, kind of power and, and ownership, you know, that were emerging of folks that were just renting these out, making a lot of money. Um, we used that research and we began to interact with then Councilman Michael Mutter because he was the councilman of the fourth district at the mm -hmm. time, right? And, you know, it was very interesting. Um, I think 
I think Nutter felt like he needed to do something for that part of his district. So that fourth district is very split, right? You've got the one part in like, you know, the Windwood and the, you know, and then the other part is, it's like a big boomerang, but it's split. Split by race, largely, but split by geography, you know, the river. So, and I think, Joe, you you you're a, you're a native there. It was it was its own. Wasn't that part that Maniac Roxborough was its own district, right? When the population was bigger and it was and land, people talk about. Yes, and land. Of, she right? was one of the boom boom sisters. Go back and listen to our <laughs> okay. episode. Go back to our episode. We did one. Okay, on good, good. On the boom so, boom um, sisters. Uh, so the district had changed and now it's half of, you know, what it was is now half of the new district. And so I think there's probably some sense of, you know, loss of representation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Nutter, you know, understood that and did what he could to try to deal with constituent issues up there uh, in that part of the district. And, you know, I, I think he was pretty, he was pretty responsive from what I understand, from what I remember, um, did sort of sympathize with this idea that you know, folks were generally kind of making quick money uh, at the expense of you know, kind of neighborhood stability and neighborhood culture and neighborhood mm-hmm. kind of fabric, that kind of thing. And he was sympathetic. I, I think there was some real limitations. Mm-hmm. I think he, he tried to introduce something around enforcement of this arcane law that related to you know, how many renters can you stuff in a row home, kind of a thing. Um, some increased enforcement, some increased LNI attention. It was that kind of approach to, to try to at least pump the brakes on on some of this um, real estate, you know, change. Um, you know, I think it was mildly a mild success in terms of kind of slowing down some things, perhaps. I think socially, it probably had more impact in just in terms of bringing people together that maybe not would not have worked together in that neighborhood, maybe giving them some sense of their own different kind of power, maybe some, but in terms of long-term structural changes, right? I mean, I think you, you could just look at Manny Young today and what, what, you know, what, what, you know, were these forces just too large for any, any community group to, to, to hold back, um, but you know, North Light is still there, right? It's a thriving mm-hmm. community institution. Uh, my sense is that in some ways they have been a success in, in being a bridge for the new and the old, so to speak, you know, in terms of old timers and newcomers, a place where people do come together and you know do sports and other activities that that do cross some of those old, new and you know, generational stuff that uh, at least helps create some kind of Harmony. I, I don't know, but you know they're a surviving institution. You know, so that's you know, that says it, a lot. It, it's it's interesting that your the first two, I'll say, experiences that you have mm-hmm. end up to be with two mayors uh, who were <laughs> right. council right. who became uh, mayor. Right. And and uh, certainly Street was a whole is a whole different personality yeah. than Nutter, but they're sort of dealing with the same community issues uh, yeah, from right. different perspectives. Uh, and this is again in the 90s. So it, there's, a good there's point. Different, way, different ways of doing things. It's a good and, point, right. David, did, did the, uh, the neighborhood group 
not only in Maniunk, but the other groups, did they ever come, come together and take on Rendell? Because Rendell, you know, he was looking at his city falling apart and yeah. he needed to grow. So right. he was letting the business community do what they wanted to do. Right. At least right. that's one perspective of it, right? Yeah. Um, was there any interaction going after the, the mayor and having conversations with him? And, and if there were, mm -hmm. what were they? So the short answer is no. Um, the settlement house efforts largely remained very local, uh, very neighborhood focused, you know. Um, by the late 90s, right, the, the money and the kind of energy around the settlement house organizing project was sort of, and the leadership was sort of petering out. And what happened was, those pockets that that were still had some life in them uh, from that project sort of merged into EPOP. So by 2000, oh, you right. had so, what, was it Lutheran and who else merged into EPOP? Yeah, so some of the churches around Lutheran, mm -hmm. that Lutheran settlement kind of brought together, organized. Some of them joined, ended up joining EPOP. Okay. Uh, in Maniunk and Roxborough, some of those, um, well, Northlight, I believe, became a member of EPOP. Some of those churches became a member of EPOP. St. Saint Timothy's up on Ridge Avenue and um, oh. um, the a short period of time, uh, St. Saint Lucy's. I'm sorry? Did the Germantown Jewish Center uh, also get... Uh, you know, that's very interesting. That's my understanding of them is that they were members of PIA, which was the right. sort of competing, you know, faith-based organizing effort. They ended up joining and are still members of power, right? If we trend, if we go 10 years in, into the future, they end up joining right. power and they're still active in power. Yeah. Right. So I would say that the settlement organizing effort never reached the scale to do citywide stuff. Active pieces of it that were still had some life in them joined EPOP and EPOP did do a lot of citywide stuff. It probably was under Rendell, although it may have been under Street by that point, because I think Street became mayor in what, 98, 90? Uh, 99. Oh, something like okay yeah okay. yeah so i i don't remember and i was not a part of any citywide organizing stuff that was specifically aimed at, at the rendell administration what i do remember and i was sort of involved in in well i i did i transitioned to epop myself so i did end up working for epop for a few years in that 2000 to 2002 ish and the kinds of things that we were doing there, there was some citywide stuff around the, a big issue around around that time was abandoned cars. Well, that was a street. if you remember this. Yeah, and street that was, was a street. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah. yeah. So there was a big campaign around abandoned cars and kind of pushing the city to have a better system uh, of it, it ended up hinging on um like towing rates and like dump dump reimbursement fees or something, which made it uneconomical to tow and bring a, an abandoned car to a dump. And it was more, it was cheaper to just leave it on the street kind of thing. So there was some technical 
issue around what the city could do to tweak that that ended up happening. And I think there was some movement around cleaning up that issue uh, under that administration with groups like EPOP pushing. Yeah. Yeah, that was streets, neighborhood and transition. Uh, that yeah, was one they, thing. Uh, and NTI. NTI. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So before, so, we, before um, we move mm -hmm. forward, uh, finish up on uh, the Maniunk organizing and stuff. Mm -hmm. How did it end? Was it like 1998 mm -hmm. and? Formally, I think the um, settlement house organizing project as we called it would have ended by 99, 2000. Mm -hmm. Right, so it was only a five year funded project, right? It was about a year, yeah. And at that point, I believe, um, Again, some leadership had changed at the federation level. The there was not great um, foresight into okay, well, this William Penn grant it's going to run out. How are we going to sustain this thing? Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the settlement houses sort of realized this is this is hard. Like we don't really know if we can sustain or be a kind of community organizing entity and a kind of, um, you know, advocacy entity and a, and a hold the city accountable entity at the same time as, you know, a lot of them were relying on, you know, million dollar DHS grants to run their programs, right? Kind of, right. Kind of right. thing. So I think that was tough for some of them. I think I, I look back and I think, you know, it was a bit of an experiment. Right. It was a bit of an experiment. We learned some things. We got, you know, we, 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 we got, we had some movement in different areas. It did lead to some other things It melded into EPOP. And I think, you know, and then in many ways, what survived of EPOP and of PIA ended up in some ways forming the foundation for power. So I think all these things are kind of connected mm -hmm. over time. There's, there is a, for me, there's a connection. So so you're saying things die out, but they kind of revive in another form somehow. From you know? from, from uh, you're seeing a, a connection that that starts, let's just say, for discussion in it ninety or ninety one, and it first it sort of morphs into one thing, and then it morphs into another thing, and now it's morphed into uh, power. Uh, is is that? Uh, I would say that's one. Yes, that's one branch of like a of a tree you know, right. of organizing in the city. And there's certainly, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of other more issue-based, right, groups yeah, sure. and more identity-based organizing that's, you know, all doing interesting different kinds of work in the 90s and the 2000s that, you know, have nothing to, nothing to do with this branch. Right. But I would say the kind of, the kind of neighborhood focus and congregation focus, yeah, that I feel like that's a, that's a lineage or a branch that that's connected in my mind, my experience. Yeah. Yeah. So while you're thinking about that, Pete, so let's finish up on the Nutter thing. Was did people feel that they actually got something done because Nutter actually proposed those bills and I don't know if he got them through or not, but at least yeah. that done. I think by and large, yes. Um, I think by and large, my recollection is that people, while skeptical of him, I think maybe in the beginning, mm -hmm. 
I think most people felt like he put in sort of a earn an honest effort to sort of hear them out, try to advocate for them, try to be on their side. I think in the end, I think that's what the what the what the feeling was. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know Northlight had a close, I think, positive relationship with the Nutter administration. Um, that's my recollection. I, I, I don't I don't remember folks in that particular campaign in that particular period feeling like he had yesed them or screwed them or or you right. know. Um, I don't think this was a, I don't think he had a a horse in that race in terms of like, you know, a handful of outside real estate guys who were buying up a couple of dozen property. Like, you know what I mean? I don't think that cost him a lot of political capital to say, Hey, we got to crack down on these guys, you know? Um, that's my sense. So the question is, is, I mean, the broader question is community organizing and city council um, turn gentrification into a positive force rather than a negative force. Oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Well, turning into a positive force. So let me, let me tell you uh, briefly another, a little um, leg of my, of my journey. So after I left EPOP, I worked for a group called the Women's Community Revitalization Project, sure, mm-hmm. which was uh, has still been running, run by director Nora Lichtash, sure, who's mm-hmm. a, a Germantown person and a longtime uh, affordable housing person, and so they the, they were really in the thick of of this issue in what do we call this? We call it sort of northern li- north of Northern Liberties, right? Oh well. Yeah, like between like Gerard and Lehigh. Right. You know, front to Temple. It's kind of, right. you know. East side of so, Broad. Yes. So WCRP founded at a Lutheran settlement house. So there's another connection there. Started doing housing for, in the beginning, women who were survivors of domestic violence and things like that. And, and they started doing housing, particularly for those kinds of women and their families. And it grew into a larger sort of just affordable housing in general, affordable housing for families. And so they, they figured out a way and they were very savvy way to, to deeply, to mostly privately fund, although some, some city money and tax credit stuff, but to really deeply subsidize housing in ways that a lot of other CDCs didn't seem to do or know how to do or didn't want to do. So they were building clusters of eight, 10, 12, 15 uh, units of housing in that area. So 4th and Master, 6th and Montgomery, a little bit further up north of Lehigh around 9th in Indiana. And at the time- There was a book. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. That's right, right. right. Um, Steve Lopez, right? Right. at the time, right? Again, this is now into the early 2000s, mid 2000s, land in that part of the city. And this was the, the street NTI thing. You, they, were give, they were given it away to CDCs essentially, right? Right. Figuratively, right? Because nobody wanted it at very little value. And a CDC comes along and says, we can put 10 units of housing. We got the funding, you know, and it was 
relatively, I mean, it wasn't easy, but it was relatively easy for groups like WCRP to build. Right. Well, that's changed pretty quickly, right? So by 2006, seven, basically that spigot had dried up, right? There was now a market in that right. neighborhood, right? Um, Temple began to, you know, kind of expand in some, in some ways east of that train station, right? To, right. You know, yeah. um, Northern Liberties was, you know, pre pressuring upwards. So, so WCRP, there was no, there was no quote free land or cheap land to get anymore from the city that was, you know, in public, uh, in the public domain. Um, and so it's very interesting. There was a lot of debate about what is this organization going to do? It, it, its mission was building affordable housing in this neighborhood. And that was premised on something that doesn't exist anymore. How do we deal with this, right? And so there was a lot of talk about, well, going back to, can we turn gentrification into a positive? We know how to build houses. Could we build market rate houses? Could we make money from that venture and subsidize affordable housing over here? You know, they ended up not doing that. But I remember that debate is sort of like, well, this this could be a viable option, A, to stay alive as an organization and B, to capitalize on the money that, that is being made here. You know, somebody's so going to be making think, this do you money. Think if, if Why not us and take it and yeah. put it into, you know. So do you yeah. think uh, in retrospect, uh, had you followed that sort of line, would it have been uh, a more successful line because you would have had the money to do it? It's a really good question. I would leave that to Nora. I think you should get Nora on your on your podcast. <laughs> she has a lot of good stories around this, more, way more than I do. Um, I do remember feeling conflicted because I was, you know, on the organizing staff, and so my loyalties were, you know, kind of with the neighborhood people and. The, I was not thinking of it as an organizational leader perspective. So, you know, I remember at the time thinking, this is, you know, wait, we can't do that. Um, you know, looking back, and if I was the director of that organization, I might think, hey, maybe this is, you know, this is happening, right? People will make money off this neighborhood. Why not us? You know, kind yeah, of. If you can't beat them, join them. Right. Um, that is not ended up, that, is, that isn't what they ended up doing. Um, you know, they adapted, they shifted their mission a little bit. They started building in other parts of the city in right. areas that still had, you know, affordable land. And, you know, so there's still, their mission is still core in terms of, you know, uh, very affordable housing. It's just that neighborhood, right? So, I mean, a lot has been written, right, about CDCs and gentrification, right? Like, do they till the ground for gentrification, right? Mm -hmm. uh, inadvertently um by you know right. creating some value in neighborhoods where there was not much value 10 years 20 years 30 years earlier right and then that makes it more attractive um you could certainly make a case for that you know mm -hmm. in some ways that's what people some people want cdcs to do right <laughs> they right. do the hard work of bringing up value in a community and so there and then and then and then profit making entities can come in and you know, yeah, um, a similar thing happened with Northlight because they launched the Manion Development Corporation, which closed uh, to Main Street. Yes, and yes. And investors saw that, then they were followed by the housing developers. 
Um, and then it just you know steamrolled that way. And North Boy Settlement started that trend. I, I forgot know. about that connection. Yeah, yeah, interesting. interesting yeah. So yeah. it's like we want to bring things in, right? And in bringing things in, are we what's what is the domino effect down the road, right? Right. How do we control what we start? That's, I think, an age-old question. And I think there's communities around the country, some pockets in certain cities, like, oh gosh, the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative is held up as a prime example of, of this kind of thing. Like they, they somehow seem to have controlled that at least a little bit more successfully than other groups working in potentially gentrifying uh, neighborhoods. For, our, for the pastors, where's Dudley Street? Oh, I'm sorry. So Dudley Street is in um, the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston. Okay. And it's kind of a famous case study. It's a group that convinced the city to give them as a nonprofit powers of eminent domain so that they themselves could take wow. control of land. Yeah. Um, but is it just just for the what we'll call Dudley Street, or is it does that blossom into other organizations in other areas? Of uh, this one organization was given that power by the city for a very particularly defined they call it the Dudley Triangle. It's like you know a, 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 a square mile or something, or not even not even a square mile. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great there's a great story hold, holding ground I think it's a little video it's a great story if people want to want to check that out and they're still going they still do very interesting work up there in Boston. Um, David, so. let me take, let me switch gears now. Were you yeah. involved in any work at the school based organizing that David Hornbeck paid for? Uh, I was not. Mm -hmm. I was not involved. I remember that. I was sort of adjacent to it. I was not involved directly. Okay, all right. We might edit that stuff out now because I know mm -hmm. the guy Gordon from EPOP. Yes. Yeah, he was involved in it at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. We'll we'll edit this part out. Um, let's go to talk about how you get to power. Okay. So um, I sort of took took a, a break from from organizing after the um, work with the. WCRP housing uh, group um, did some other things. And at that time, this would be 2007, eight, nine, um, PIA, Philadelphia Interfaith Action had, I think, dissolved, disbanded. Uh, EPOP was kind of struggling in terms organizationally, you know, it had been around for a good 15 years that the original leaders had sort of moved on or passed away. Um, Steve had moved on, there was a director, he was still involved, but there was a new director. And I think there were some challenges there with kind of keeping the momentum and the, and, and the, and the growing uh, alive there. So they were, they were sort of kind of going through their life cycle, so to speak. Um, and they were a part of what is now called Faith in Action, but it was what well, was originally called PICO, mm. which was founded by Jesuit priest John Bauman in the 70s in Oakland, right? A faith-based organizing effort. And he got trained by someone who got trained by Alinsky, et cetera, et cetera. So they became a national group. EPOP was a part of this national group. PICO 
the story that I understand it to be is that they were kind of concerned that their local affiliate EPOP was kind of dying or struggling, right? And so there was talk of, well, you know, maybe we can tear down and rebuild or reinvent or start over or something, right? And, you know, all so many organizing efforts go through a life cycle, right? So, um, so I think there was some tensions there around, you know, folks who were still sort of committed to keeping EPOP going and alive and then others particularly from the national office saying, you know what, it's just, it's not working. We got to rebuild. And I think there was kind of a, a fissure there. Um, so the Pico folks really felt like, well, if EPOP isn't going to kind of rebuild and, and reinvent and, you know, uh, then maybe we should try to build something new or try to foster something new. So, um, uh, so some, some, some PICO organizers who had some local connections began conversations with clergy in Philadelphia, some of whom who had been involved in EPOP prior, some of whom had been involved in PIA going back even further, and just began a series of one-on-one saying, you know, what is the state of congregation-based organizing in Philly? What's needed? Is there a need? Can we build something new? Um, I got pulled into those conversations because, you know, I was the one kind of most recently coming out of EPOP that was kind of still around, I think, and was sort of asked, hey, you know, Pico is trying to see if it can spark a new faith-based organizing effort. You want to help out kind of thing. So I honestly said, sure. You know, I was had another job. I said, I'll give you six months. I'll meet with all my contacts, I'll hand them over to you. And, you know, I'm done. I, I don't want to do this stuff anymore. <laughs> um, and how long did it take you to get out of that? Yeah, well, it took about 11 years. So, yeah. um, so it, 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 it took off. Um, and the kind of negotiating with EPOP, you know, they, they kind of, they kind of put themselves to bed and it did sort of formally close, close shop. Um, but some congregations that were involved did kind of move over to this new conversation. And that's really all it was for about a year, a conversation. Mm -hmm. And there were folks like Wes Lathrop, who had come from another PICO organization, who came down to Philly, was working a little bit for EPOP towards the end. And then he started doing some one-on-ones with congregations and clergy to bring them to the table. And people like Joe Fleming, who had been a organizer um, in New Jersey, ran the Camden based group, Camden Churches Organized for People after Steve Honeyman did. And so he was around. And so we basically spent about a year having conversations with clergy and Pico was sort of bankrolling this for the, for the time just to see was their interest in building something new, right? And so after a year, year and a half, right? We had a pretty good, a set of about 25 clergy at the table meeting monthly, talking about what a new faith-based community organizing effort could, should look like in the 2010s, given the new reality. Uh, I guess now Nutter is mayor at this point, yep. right? Um, you know, new issues, new reality. It's not the 90s anymore, it's the 2010s. Um, 
whatever gets built needs to be much more intentionally multiracial, multi-faith, multi-neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so a real emphasis on this thing has to look like Philly, Philadelphia, right? So, so, but that that that's not where. Let's just go back to to ninety or ninety one. Yeah. That's yeah. not where this started. Uh, but there's the realization after so many different metamorphoses, so to speak, that mm -hmm. it has to be bigger. I think so. Wall is okay. We're going to get the stoplights done in Maniunk, but that's not going to get to the point of really putting the neighborhoods into uh, a, a knit that everybody's looking for. I think I think that's exactly right. That was the conversation. Like people were, and there was some there was some tension there, right? Because there were congregations huh. saying, "Well, look, I want to do this thing. I want to join this thing because there's things in my neighborhood that I want to deal with, and right. I want your help in giving me power to deal with this." And there were other people saying, "Look, if we don't sort of, if we're not in negotiation with the mayor or the chamber of commerce or whatever the governor, then we're never we're not going to get to the big the big policy wins, right?" So the big policy win focus won out on this power thing. And it was, it was a negotiation of a few months about what sort of the founding platform was gonna be. Like, what are we gonna come out with as our big goals and big vision, you know? Um, and so the first big thing that was, was agreed upon was this thing around the Philadelphia International Airport, which had recently announced a $5 billion expansion project, right? And tens of thousands of jobs coming to Philadelphia. You're shaking your head. Well, I'm shaking my head because there was a lawyer named Ron White who was involved, uh, yes. who was involved with a lot of concessions. And there were some questions about that. Unfortunately, uh, Mr. Yes. White died before any of those questions were uh, dealt with. So when you start talking about the airport, uh, my mind thinks in a Philadelphia way. <laughs> well, uh, yes, the airport is a, you know, is a, is a, well, you know, what we learned, right? It's the biggest economic engine in the region, if you think about it, right? You know, mm -hmm. the tens of thousands of people that work there, the tens of thousands, you know, the, the billions that flow through there. Um, and so there was this idea of, well, okay, if there is going to be this huge public works project coming our way, right? Now, it ended up not happening, right? I don't think, not in the way that they originally thought. Philadelphians who are often left out of these, you know, decision-making and access to these kinds of jobs, et cetera, et cetera, right, need to be at that table. And so that, that was the opportunity that the original clergy leaders and organizers working with them in 2011, 2012 said, this is where we're gonna kind of put all of our chips coming out of the gate. Like we are going, our first big issue is gonna be, we are going to make sure that whatever, you know, billions and whatever jobs are created by this big public works project, Philadelphians, you know, on the margins are gonna benefit and we're gonna be there for them to make sure that happens kind of thing. So, that campaign twists and turned, that project never really came to fruition uh, exactly as it got planned. But as the, as the group began to dig deeper into the airport and how it works and what opportunities are actually there and who makes decisions there and how much of an economic engine it really is, um, 
you know, it, it was it was it was found out that you know the, the kinds of jobs that are there, right? There's there are um, there are sort of t uh, tiers of, of jobs, right? And the whole thing kind of rests on an, a, what our analysis was sort of an underclass of, of folks who are non-unionized, part-time, um, minimum wage folks who are the outsourced contracted, subcontracted workers who pick up your bags at the curb when you pull up, you know, who clean the toilets in the terminal, who work in the Chick-fil-A in the terminal, you know, those kinds of things. Though that class of worker, which is really, in some ways you could argue, the, you know, the reason why the whole thing is such an economic engine is because you have this class of very low paid folks at the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. um, we began to change the focus on, okay, not just any jobs at the airport for people, good jobs at the airport for people, good paying jobs for, you know, jobs with dignity at the airport, et cetera, et cetera. So we began connecting with the unions, SCIU 32BJ and Unite Here 274, who represented some of those people, but not all of them and wanted to represent more and saw us as a clergy and a faith-based group as, a, as an ally that could really help them in their unionizing efforts. We needed them because they had connections to workers that we didn't necessarily have, but we had a broader scope and a broader kind of vision than the unions did. And so it was kind of a, a marriage there around that issue. Like a lot of these campaigns, twists and turns, and, the, and it ended up, what it ended up being the win was, and this goes to Councilman Good Jr., right? Son of another mayor that I'm sure you've right. talked about on your show. Oh, um, yes, we have. He he became an ally and a champion of um, a amended uh, ordinance uh, in Philadelphia that was the what was used to be called the 21st century minimum wage law, which said that anyone working on a city contract or work, working for the city had to make at least 10.25 an hour. Um, and we made the case successfully that these folks in these outsourced jobs should be considered working on city contracts because the airport is owned by the city and anything that's underneath any is really in the end a city contractor or subcontractor because it's all coming out of the city owned entity that all those workers should be included in that 21st century minimum wage law so at 1025 as opposed to you know 725 um that got passed, it got bumped up. I think now it's at 15. So every couple of years it has gotten bumped up and it was started primarily in terms of council, getting Councilman Wilson Good Jr. to take this up and, and, and um, Councilman Johnson, because it was in his district, right? The airport's in his district, but it was really an at-large person like Good who kind of made the broader case that this is something good for the city and that the city should do. And so he really was a champion in making that bill go through and so, there's some exceptions, but now pretty much 95% of those workers are covered under that higher wage. Uh, are, are you finding that, that the people that are working out at the airport, I'm not sure if you know it, are, are they um, work, uh, do they, are they from Southwest Philly, let's just say, are they, are they, from, yeah. are they from that neighborhood? Yeah. If the airport's a neighborhood. Yeah, but from that area, within a couple miles of that area, they are. It's very interesting. So we did do some analysis, mostly the uh, uh, well with Councilman Johnson because he had a particular interest. Like he wanted to know, well, well how many people from he my didn't, district are going yeah, to work? Yeah, you know, um, 
it turns out that the majority of folks are living in the zip codes that are adjacent or next adjacent to the airport. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. It, it is, I mean, certainly people come from farther flung, but the largest, at least maybe plurality of workers at the airport, particularly the lower wage ones are coming from Southwest. Maybe they're coming from Delco right over, you know, the border right, there, sure, sure. but they are coming largely from the from the near proximity yeah yeah okay so that yeah that's interesting that's I, I, we we did a show joe and i did a show with a a, a guy named ira hartford from penn meds and oh, yeah yeah and one of their uh missions is to have all these what they call anchor institutions anchor institutions yeah they they're not going anywhere. The airport's not going anywhere. Right, right, Penn's not going right, anywhere. Right. right. That, Hospital. Yeah. Right. They they should hire people from the neighborhoods. Right, and right. Um, from what I understood from our discussion, and Joe, maybe I'm wrong, they've been successful at that as well in getting Penn to hire people from the neighborhoods. But mm -hmm. I don't think that they're necessarily that hung up on uh what type of jobs um or right. what right you know i i don't know that they're pushing okay are the people here should be getting paid 12 dollars an hour just for instance i right. think their position right. is we want the people from the communities to have a stake in it and we want them to work right. the details in terms of pay and benefits are not ours uh, yeah, I think, yeah, that's my understanding, too. I think the University City District has a whole West Philly tra training skills training institute right. thing that tries to, right? I think that's a part of that. But with the airport, I think the reason why it was possible, right, is because it was, it is a city-owned entity. So you could use that ordinance, right, right. that says that city, you know, city workers and, and workers on city contracts have to be paid something you couldn't do at Penn, you couldn't mandate, you couldn't legislate that at Penn. Um, I mean, maybe you could, but it was a lot easier, obviously, with a city. Mm -hmm. The case that we made was that this is a public entity kind of yeah. thing. So David, power's been around a long time, longer than EPOP and what the settlements tried. Uh, what are the one or two characteristics that you see there to make that happen? A um, couple things. One, and this is not without tension and, and the cost, but um, growth. So there was there was there was uh, a lot of energy pretty early on that not only can you not just only focus on neighborhood specific organizing, you've got to really work at the city level. There was a re realization that well we can't just work at the city level we got to work at the state level right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they've been able to do that and, I, and again you know not without a lot of internal tension there was a lot of you know grappling what does that mean is that mean philly's not going to be you know the center of our issue of our platform does that mean we're going to be sidelined again by pennsylvania which is a, you know not an urban state etc but I think that decision to keep growing anyway was prob has probably served it well. And I think the way it's been done, smart in that counties 
in, in sort of how this is now, and I've not been there for two years, but sort of how it, it's structured now from what I understand is that counties have kind of their own semi-autonomous chapters. So there's a power Bucks County and a power Montgomery County and a power Lancaster um, and a power Lehigh, which is really Allentown based. Um, so the idea is that you've got growth so you're not like shrinking and stagnating in, in just one place, but it's not um, sort of mandating that everyone across these areas all work on one issue and, and subordinate local stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think that was smart. And I think that's one key maybe to the, to the success so far that you, you give people outlets for joint statewide work. And so they've been doing a lot around the school funding Mm -hmm. issue um yeah i wish we could get somebody who would agree to come on and talk to us about education oh yeah you can't get anybody <laughs> they want to keep uh, the job we, we, we've been we've been trying to ask people and um about the lawsuit in particular or well I, you know this probably will get edited out but yeah, yeah. what we really i mean philadelphia has two huge problems and you saw them the first day you were at temple yeah. There's poverty and yeah. there's education. Right, right. And it's the chicken or the egg. But what's in front of us is both those things. And the, yeah. the we've talked about how the funding formula, we did a whole show on it. Oh, you did? And, okay, good. And, but I would really like someone to come on and tell us what happened with this lawsuit because it was percolating since the 90s. Yeah. And the problems with the schools go back further than that. Sure, sure, and, sure. And I don't think people quite understand how Philadelphia pays more in taxes than any other county in the state. And their end of the formula is horrible because mm -hmm. we're a poor mm -hmm. city mm -hmm. and we're a county to ourselves. So mm -hmm. we're not like Montgomery County. We have Norristown, but you also have Lower Murray. Right, and right, that's right, a different right. world. Right. All you got to do is walk across City Line Avenue. Right. And there's a tax base there. And yep. I think that somebody needs to say, this is how it boils down to it. And we had a six month trial about this. Yes. And, yes. you know, there was some great reporting, but I don't know that anybody, you know, said, oh, my God, there I just doesn't feel like in the public there's this, oh, my God. Uh, and people say, well, why are the city schools so horrible? And then you get the charter money. Mm -hmm, it is getting mm -hmm, diverted out of the mm -hmm. public schools. There's so many issues, and I can't get anybody to come and talk to us. Interesting. Nobody from the Law Education Law Center wants to I, 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 I sent a long email to, to uh, Mike Churchill. Yeah. Uh, and he hasn't responded. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe because it's... Gonna, I know why it gonna, it's going to get appealed and they're going to stay in court. And I don't know who knows. Well, and, and people don't like to talk even in a small uh, podcast like ours and uh, have something taken out of context. Did you hear what X said on this? Sure. Platform? Sure. Yeah. I, people yeah. are very, I mean, Joe, I think Joe and I've talked about this, but yeah. this will all get edited out. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it is getting late. Let me say my last question for you is, you know, what's the future community organizing? You know, that that's not like single issue thing, like, you know, yeah. uh, like, you know, child care for everybody or healthcare. Mm -hmm. What, yeah. at the community level, where, where do you think the next 10 years 
it's going to look like in four mm -hmm. hours? That's a really good question. I have to look into my, uh, my crystal ball here. Well, you know, I tell you, it's interesting. I have been a little bit removed from this world since I left power two years ago. Um, so in some ways, I, I, I don't have a finger on the pulse, but also I have a perspective of sort of like standing back a little bit and looking around and seeing what's happening with a little bit of different eyes, fresh eyes, maybe. Um, you know, it seems my sense is that maybe we're still in it, but there was a few years that it felt like it was somewhat, it felt like a little bit of a golden, of, of, of sort of like a golden years. There was so much going on in Philadelphia, it felt like organizing wise. And maybe it wasn't all coordinated and maybe it was, you know, all over the place, but there was so much, so much going on from like, and then of course, you know, during the pandemic and after George Floyd and all of that organizing and all that outburst of, of energy and, and activism, um, but even preceding that, you know, um, all kinds, and, and you mentioned, you know, issue activism, you know, so many groups doing like land-based stuff and community, you know, reclaiming land for community purposes. And there's so much of that stuff going on in the city right now. Um, there had been, uh, you know, groups like Juntos and other groups doing a lot of very, you know, uh, very visible and cutting edge, you know, immigration related organizing work. Um, you have a lot more organizations, frankly, you know, organized by and for people of color, you know, with, with leaders of color. Um, and it just seemed like there was just, it's so much going on. A lot of it, you know, groups like 215, what are those groups? 215 uh, PA Alliance and Reclaim and all those, those groups that cropped up. Um, there was groups around, you know, the um, before the current DA was elected, there was a lot of organizing around criminal justice reform that sort of, mm -hmm. you know, in many ways right. paved, the, paved the way for that, for that, for his election, for his, his victory there. Um, so I guess I would say it's sort of like, I don't know, chaotic, creative chaos and a lot of energy right now. That's what it feels like, but good. Mm -hmm. It feels good. It maybe feels chaotic. It maybe feels like there's all just different groups and, you know, a lot of progressive groups sometimes kind of maybe go, go, go at each other more than they, than they should, you know, kind of thing. Um, but I do feel that there's hope that there's a lot more culture. It feels like the culture of organizing feels pretty strong mm. and diverse mm. and multivarious than, than at least I was aware of, let's say when I got into this in the nineties. I don't know if that really answers your question. No, uh, yeah. And I think, so here's a, here's a caveat to that. And this is my own personal bias. And I know people are not gonna, some people are not gonna like this, but I do get a little concerned, I must say, the energy that, let's say this mayoral race, which of course is very important, I, 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 think, I think it's sometimes these mayoral races and the city council races consume a lot of these kinds of groups energy in ways that I'm not sure is the best use of that energy, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Um, 
you know, obviously who's the next mayor is important. Um, whoever the next mayor is, right, all the same issues are going to be there. None of, I mean, there's some great people running for mayor. None of them are going to be able to have the power and the skills to do, to fix all of these things, right? None of them. And I don't care who you think is the best one, right? Um, so it feels like the energy of like focusing on a candidate or trying to, you know, like groups that begin to do a little bit more electoral work in a mayoral's race. I feel like I'm not sure that I, I and I know if people hear this, they're not gonna like this, but I just, I'm not sure that's a great use of all of our energy mm -hmm. because whatever, whoever that person's gonna be, the same amount of energy is gonna be needed to hold that person accountable, to push them towards all these goals, right? None of them are gonna give us, a, you know, of the red carpet to solving all these issues. So it feels like I just, I, I sometimes wonder about, and this is like a thought more, it's, just, it's a thought in my head more than a well-formulated well theory, but I just, I just wonder about electoral involvement by some of these groups, if that's the wisest use of energy. Sure. Yeah. I'll well, leave it at that. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be counter <laughs> well I, no, the, the only question i would ask is so you've been here and been active in in community organizations from randell to street to nutter to 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 kenny is there one uh i don't know issue that uh that drives them all together that you can say hey each of these mayors did X and it helped the city through our community organizations, or is it mm. just too mm. spread out to say none of them shared the same thing? Boy, that's a really good question. I, my, my answer is gonna be a little bit of a cop out. So I'm gonna give you the freedom. Right. <laughs> Feel free, I do it every day. I think on, very specific issues, right? There have been, you know, in any one of those administrations, right, were, 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 you know, not helpful to a lot of the community organizations that I was involved in. Um, in general, would most of them sort of, were they all, do I want to believe that they were all kind of trying to point in the same kind of direction that these community organizations that I worked for were trying to point in, I would say in a very general sense, that is probably true. Um, but you don't work on general, you know, you don't work no, on, no, no, you don't, I mean, you, I, I, you don't work in big very, vision, you work the on question specific was very issues. general to start with, so. <laughs> so I would say council, right? You know, that's where it feels like most of my experience had been sort of working through particular council people right, to get particular pieces of legislation passed. Um, like the Wilson Good Jr. thing. With the Wilson Good Jr. thing, uh, you know, I have to say Councilman Nutter, when he was a councilman, was uh, was a big supporter of the um, the um, Housing Trust Fund, which is right. something we didn't, we didn't get into um, right. that I was involved in. So, um, you know, it's always like, what's the, what's the adage of like, no permanent allies, no permanent enemies. Right. Uh, I'm not sure how popular that phrase is these days. <laughs> it feels like there might be a little bit more purity 
sort of ideological purity, maybe. But I, I, I do think that that is that that actually does describe like how this kind of stuff works, right? Sure. Like you may not like it, but that is kind of how it works, right? Hey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. My perspective, my experience is not the that, be all that, end all that's, by any well, means. <laughs> that's why that's why we have you here. <laughs> well, thank you. Appreciate it. I hope thank this you. was I hope your listeners get something out of this and uh appreciate well, you having me on. And it was well, nice to uh nice to talk about this. Yeah, stuff. we appreciate it, it, your it really time was. Put in, David. It's great, it's great history, right? It's the history it is. Of, uh, of our times. It is, and I appreciate you guys capturing this history. It really is important. It's good. It's good. Yeah, all right, we'll be in touch. All right, I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait for the check in the mail. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You take crypto when the royalties the when the royalties come in. Right? Every click, I get a penny or something. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> take you care. You get a guys. crypto. You get a crypto. I'll take it. <laughs> it's on the way. The, the check's in the mail. <laughs> take care. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. What do you think? I thought that was pretty good. That was fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah, he's a good guy. That was fun. Uh, you, you notice I did not insert myself into the discussion about Mr. Krasner. Oh, I, I was so hoping you would not. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've done it, you know, I've, I, you know, I've, I, I saw I've, the sparks coming out of your ears. I, 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 I've, I've made a promise <laughs> that I'm not going to insert myself into these kinds of things. I'll just ask the open-ended questions, <laughs> even if I don't like what the response is. In, sure. in that sort of thing. But um, I thought it was very interesting because um, he seems uh, very well grounded. He, he says things fail. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. It, it, mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, I don't, I, I, you just don't get many people who are still in that, in a profession to say this failed, this didn't work. It had to morph into something else. And um, it, it, it was really edifying in the sense that I, I, you know, I didn't associate power with the other two organizations. I've heard about the, you know, the, the faith-based community stuff, um, but I didn't really tie it all into this progression of uh, community groups from small, like let's just say North Light all the way up to these big all-encompassing citywide things, which they've seemed to have come to the conclusion is the only way to, to really get something done in a bigger way. Um, and that, that, that metamorphosis is really, they, it's interesting because you hear about these things and you say, well, who are they and where did they come from? And, and now I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the housing trust fund too, that was a big couple year issue, which would have been really interesting because I know Sanchez was involved with that. And I can't think of the other council people. It was a big battle, the council, because they all wanted uh, a piece to go directly to their district. Of course. That, that didn't win out, right? So no. the administration got the full control of that. that that's a good story there. And, and, um, yeah, maybe uh, Nora Liktash would come on because she led that fight. Did you hear Clark is not running for re-election? Yeah, yeah, biggie. Wow, that's... He's giving up a lot of power. 
Lot of That's money. Bedlam, baby. Wait till that. Wait till that council convenes. Oh my God, I know. There's Cindy Bass could be there now, and they're only going to get more yahoos. And Cindy Bass could be the head of city council. What do you think about that? I, I don't really don't know anything about. It. I don't like her. I met her a couple times. I didn't uh, like her. Here, here's here's person, what I can say. As my council person, she has been very responsive to our small things. She mm has -hmm. she said she's going to do something and she's done it. Past that, um, I I'm not seeing her with some forward thinking philosophical ideas that are going to help the city. But then the other another possibility is Kenyana Johnson depending on what happens with his second trial. I think they're trying him again, right? Yeah, there's something going on there. There's some other so I don't know if you want to have a councilman that's under indictment as your president council, but this being Philadelphia, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. So so why do you think the building trades endorse Parker? I don't I, get that. That's it's that's gotta be Tasca. I just don't I don't get it. I don't see how she matches up with them. Yeah, me neither. I I don't I I really don't know. Um, but as I've said to you, there won't take many votes if they're all all these people are still in this race to win. It really no, won't, because right. you gotta figure the turnout's gonna be not so great. That'd be dismal. Yeah, so you could win with 20, 25% of the vote. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. That's so, really but I don't understand that. And then uh, I, I, you know, uh, then you had the food commercial food workers. They're all out there for Brown. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, and then you got the teachers with, for that Yahoo Helen Yim. Jim, Jim. Yeah, she's crazy in a three dollar bill. She is. Um, I she's she's too liberal for me. I and I people like that should never try to run things. They should just stand outside and yell and scream like they she, do. She, she wouldn't know how to run anything. She's got no experience in running anything. Exactly. Exactly. She, she like our last two mayor. Well, no. No. Kenny was the only, Yim and uh, Kenny was the only council at large uh, mayor in our lifetime. Nutter was a district councilman and so was Street. Mm, okay. So they're, they're not, they're, they're free agents. They're, they're, you know, a council at large. They don't right. have any accountability to the neighbors down on, the, down on Crescent Street about the bar. And but they're good at promising everybody anything, right? So they exactly. Be accountable. Exactly. And I don't know that a lot of these people would know what to do to hold anybody accountable. Right. Yeah. What, what I've learned the last couple of years, whoever's it, the mayor and administration, they can do anything. City council can't keep them accountable for anything. Right. But the things that these people might be contemplating to doing are just it, it doesn't help us it doesn't help us yeah i don't know i like i i've i've been reading up on um uh derek green 
I like Derek Green. I like him too. He's got no chance to win. I know. <laughs> I know. I think he's but confident. He, he seems to be confident. Reinhardt has some at least executive experience. Right. I don't Brown know which, has Brown yeah. has some executive experience. And, and so does Don. Too. Yeah. But mm -hmm. the rest of them are city council people, except for Jimmy DeLeon, who's a former municipal court judge with all that. But he sounds entertaining. And that's the, at the end of the day, bread and circuses. That's all we that's, want. Bread that, that's circuses. it. That's all we want. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Let me go. I got to I got to record or I got to save it. It's going to take about 20, 30 minutes for it just to save. All right. All right. All right. All right, all right, right man. Oh, um, we need to talk about. So, did you look at your Facebook today? No. What do you do all day long? Nothing. Obviously, go on Facebook and friend or do whatever. Share the uh, the, um, the David's David's Feynman's um, podcast with your people on Facebook. You did. Uh, I did it on mine, and I. So we're friends. So you you should see it in your feed, what they call you. Oh, it, oh, well. Yeah. All right. So, so you you put it out there, so to speak. Yeah. So there's three things you'll look at underneath. The, you'll see my thing, and then you'll one of the words will be share. You hit that share button, and that then automatically goes to all the people that are now your friends on Facebook. Is that the way it works? It's just a click away, buddy. Yeah, that's, that's what I Easy was afraid for me of. to say, right? <laughs> that's what I was afraid of. Yeah. All right. Well, I I will get that done. Okay. Good. All right. Uh, let me know if you have any problems. But, so do uh, so do you did all did all of your friends get it? Yeah. And they none of them have come to the house with pitchforks. Not yet, but then again, they don't know where you are. You're you're in an undisclosed location. There's a way for me to see if they actually do anything or make a comment and nobody said anything. So I don't know. Maybe it's good. Maybe that's good. That's probably a good thing. That's why there's nobody with pitchforks outside my house. All right, man. I'll look right, and I'll, I'll, I'll be back with you. All right. Thanks. Take care, man. All right. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye.